Welcome to Grass Talk Radio. This show is for people who play bluegrass music and anybody who might want to. Howdy folks and welcome to Grass Talk Radio. Today I want to talk about an aspect of bluegrass music that you may not have thought about. And that is the the entangled close relationship between the music and the instruments themselves. A, a large part of bluegrass music is the lore and the history of the instruments, the, what, what I would call the standardized instruments used in bluegrass music, such as the F5 mandolin, the Gibson Mastertone banjo, you know, it's hard to describe these things in terms of fiddles because it's it's very hard to identify fiddles to me. But the dobro, the K-bass, the ubiquitous K-bass. What I'm trying to get across to you is one of the ways that you can um, add to the enjoyment of bluegrass music is to get into the instruments themselves because the instruments are a huge part of this form of music. Now, I will freely admit there are hundreds, if not thousands of great instruments out there, but there are the classics. And there is also a little a little um, subset of the bluegrass crowd who is, who are into building instruments. So I want to talk today about building instruments. You might be a person sitting there, you know, with your Kentucky mandolin or your Martin D28 saying, I have no desire whatsoever to build an instrument. I'm going to leave that to C.F. Martin and company. And, you know, that could be a wise decision. But but I will tell you that there is um, there is something educational and there's something fun and sometimes humiliating in attempting to build your own instrument. I don't have to go back through all the history of music and, you know, convince you that the original, all original musical instruments were homemade, you know, it, whether it was just picking up a stump and, and, you know, a stick and beating on a hollow stump or making your own banjo. Uh, what got me thinking about this was when I did that interview with Keith Billick. I was, uh, you know, talking about the instruments that I had made and, you know, robbing a fence post from our yard and things like that. And it really got me thinking, too, how how much I think that has, uh, you know, improved the whole bluegrass experience for me. Because let's say you set out to build your own instrument. A lot of people shoot really high. I had a, a student of mine who had looked at a couple of instruments I had built and we were talking about all that. And he got real excited to build his own F5 mandolin. And he bought the current Seminoff book and I loaned him my old Seminoff book, the one in the ring binder. 
and he started buying parts and, and all this sort of stuff. But he discovered very quickly that it was more difficult than, than what he anticipated. And a, a lot of it was a lack. He had a lack of tools and especially experience in using tools. I had the good fortune of, you know, growing up in a household with a father with a, always had a, some kind of a wood shop, you know, he always had saws and hammers and, you know, all kind of tools and stuff. And we, with or without permission, spent a lot of time, you know, making things, you know, for Boy Scouts or, you know, building birdhouses. And, you know, by the time I was 12 years old, I knew if I needed to cut a piece of wood in half, I knew how to, you know, take a handsaw and, you know, stick that piece of wood in the vise and, and, you know, mark it off and start sawing, you know, how to drive a nail. You know, I don't, frankly, I don't know if kids these days know how to do much of that kind of stuff. Some do, surely. I don't know if many adults know how to do these things. But, you know, if you're, if you're listening to this, you're into bluegrass and I'm sure you already own an instrument. And if you hold that instrument in your hands and look at it, I want you to stop and think there was a person or a group of people who made that they made it out of a tree or out of some metal ores or you know you know it depends upon the part there's a whole lot of skill went into building that thing you hold in your hand even if it's a 99 dollar rogue mandolin it's still the same process it's it's taking a plant that grows in the forest and following a certain set of, of steps to turn it into that banjo or that guitar or that dobro. And I have found it fascinating over the years. And, and I think, you know, as I look back at my life, I think there are a lot of activities that I've engaged in solely for the purpose of learning more about it. You know, I didn't get into building instruments to sell instruments. In fact, I, you know, you couldn't tear them out of my cold, dead hands. You know, I mean, I spent so much time making this thing. I, you know, I'm not going to sell it. So I've never gotten into it, you know, for from a commercial aspect. I just can't, you know, bear to part with them, all the weird creations that I've made. I did it because I wanted to learn more about it. I wanted to learn how they're built. I wanted to test myself and see, you know, could I learn to do that? Am I, could I lay out a, a 12 tone equal temperament fingerboard and saw those slots perfectly parallel and of, of the correct width so that the frets drive in nicely and stick tightly and don't fall out. You know, could, could I do that? And most of my life, I'll be quite honest, has been spent with me starting with, I wonder if I could do that. I wonder, I wonder if I could make an arrowhead. I wonder if I could build a banjo. I wonder if I, you know, and it goes on and on and on. And every time I do it, I find that my life is enriched by new knowledge. 
and don't worry i'm not putting in i'm I, i'm not going to put any of the you know like weber <laughs> i'm not going to put them out of business trust me they've done the same thing but then they've put it into commercial production and more power to them that's how we all get these instruments that we love Colin, collings and martin and gibson i have great respect for those commercial enterprises but I also think it will it will enrich your musical experience if you attempt to build an instrument. So that's what I'm going to talk about today. Why do it? Number one, it's fun. I find it fun. I, I maybe it's the frustration of it that's fun. Like I don't know how to do that. I need to solve that riddle. It's like working those little Sudoku puzzles or whatever they're called or crossword. It's a puzzle and you, you've got to solve it. And I'm going to tell you today, most people just turn to Google, you know, or get on a forum and ask a question. And I don't know that that solves much of anything. Yeah. You can get a lot of input, but how do you know which input is correct? Anyway, building an instrument is fun in a, in a strange sort of way. It's also very educational because as you build the instrument, you're going to understand more about instruments. I've built instruments that don't measure up to the instruments that I perform with. I freely admit it, you know, but I understand those instruments more. And that's, that's fun and educational. It can also be a little humiliating, you know, if you build something that's like you're afraid to show it to anyone, that can be humiliating. I've done that. I, I mentioned in the, in the Billick, uh, conversation that I built a fiddle and I actually threw it away. I swear I threw it away. I kind of wish I didn't because it would be interesting to look at. It was a ghastly beast. It was a, a fiddle shaped object. And, and that was, you know, I mentioned in that interview that a, a friend of my brother's had a fiddle and I had borrowed it and was learning, you know, trying to learn to play it. And I had a couple of months and then he came to get it. And at that point is when I built the fiddle, You're looking at the Foxfire books and it was ghastly. And I, I carted around for many years and one day I was moving I was like, you know what? You're going to the dumpster. So, you know, that, that, that can be humiliating, but those things are educational. I learned what is not a fiddle, you know, another reason that, um, to build an instrument is it can sometimes, sometimes not always be economical. And that was true in my case going way back to the seventies when I was seriously bitten by the banjo bug. Of course, I'm looking through the banjo books, you know, the tablature and I'm practicing my forward backward roll and, you know, on my homemade banjo. And then through some connections, uh, at my church, I found out there was a guy there that had an Aria banjo. I think it was Aria. I don't have it anymore. And 
I went over to his house and tried the banjo out and he wanted, I don't know, 150 bucks for it or something like that. And it was a pretty low end banjo. But it, it was interesting in the fact that it, it actually had a wooden um, pot and a tone ring, but the tone ring was machined from aluminum. I know this because I completely disassembled the instrument and really looked it over real good. Every part, every metal part, while well, a flange and the tone ring were machined from aluminum. It was the lightest banjo and it sounded pretty good. I kind of wish I had still, I, I had it. It had an arch top and uh, I wanted flathead, you know, but anyway, so I had that banjo and then yeah, I'm seeing in these books, pictures of Gibson, Gibson Mastertone, Gibson, you know, at Peter Wernick's book. And the, you know, the back of the book was just, you know, all this appendix information about the Gibson Mastertone. And I think it was, I forget who wrote that article, Tom Morgan or somebody like how to identify a pre-war Gibson Mastertone and stuff. And it just, it just imbued me with the idea that well, if you're going to be a real banjo player, at some point you're going to have to have a Gibson Master Tone. That's, you know, anything less and you're going to be, you know, just a hack. So I went down to the music store looking around. Well, they're hanging at, a, at a Ken Stanton Music in Marietta, Georgia. Was an RB250 Gibson Master Tone. It said Master Tone in that little block inlay on the fingerboard like oh man i want that thing i want that real bad and like in that napoleon dynamite i want that of course i didn't have any money you know i'm in high school i got no money so i had a french horn that that my parents had bought for me and i'd played all through high school i had a french horn that they had bought at the same music store, Ken Stanton Music, Marietta, Georgia. And in the band world, you could go to a meeting of band parents and sign up to rent, rent to own a horn or a clarinet or saxophone or whatever for your kid and pay $12 a month or $15 a month or something like that. And at the end of X number of years, I don't know how many years it was, you would own it and they give you a little payment book. And my mother would, you know, write a check to Ken Stanton every month and tear it out and send the check off and $12 a month or whatever it was for that French horn. And at the end, I'm, I'm now a senior in high school and that French horn is paid for. Well, I walked into Ken Stanton thinking, well, number one, we're a customer of yours and we purchased this French horn, which I think was like $1,800. It was a lot more expensive than that Gibson Mastertone 250, RB250, which I think was 600 bucks, 625, something like that, 675. I thought, well, you know, they got the French horns over there. They got the banjos over here. I'll come in. I'll trade in the paid for French horn and we've got good credit because we've been paying on this French horn for the last three years. And you know, I would like to get that banjo and pay you $12 a month for it. You know? And the guy looked at me like I had rocks in my head. 
oh, we don't do that with guitars and banjos. You know, I'm like, what? You'll sell me a French horn for on time payment plans, but you won't sell me the banjo. I was like, it's time. It's like, take my French horn, go back home and decide I'm going to build a banjo. So I get the Stuart McDonald catalog. Props to Stu Mac. It's a great place to start. Back then, they had banjo kits. They had the, I think, I think it was called the Style 1, 2, and 3. And then they had the 3R. The 3R was a beach pot, bell bronze tone ring, had a four, no, let's see. Yeah, it had a four piece aluminum flange uh, and resonator. This is a mahogany neck, mahogany resonator, uh, rosewood fingerboard. And that banjo, I'm trying to remember what the price was. As a kit, I, I want to put it somewhere like at 340 bucks or something like that. Well, I, you know, that was doable. I could scare up that with a little bit of help and a little, you know, some work and working at the uh, Terra family restaurant, washing dishes. That was doable. I think it was just under 300 bucks. So I remember the day me counting money and handing it over to my mother and she writing a check. And me filling out the order form from the Stuart McDonald catalog and ordering the 3R banjo kit. And when that thing came, essentially all the machining of it was done. The frets were even in it. So you had to inlay it working around the frets, which was somewhat difficult to get them sanded nice and flat. But pre-fretted, already had the truss rod in, already had the fingerboard uh, I mean, the uh, peg head overlay was already on. The peg head was already shaped. The heel was shaped. Essentially, it was sanding and finishing and bolting it together. So it only took about a week, maybe, maybe less. And I had that banjo together and was playing it. And it was 10 times the banjo compared to the Aria that I had before. And the K that I had before that. And the homemade banjo that I had before that. It was a hundred times better than the old fence post banjo. So I got a really good sounding, real resonator bluegrass banjo. You know, the thing weighs like 12 pounds. For a lot less money than what Ken Stanton wanted for that RB250. And you know what? I have a feeling if I had bought the RB250... I'll bet you I wouldn't have had it three years and I would have been, you know, trading up, looking for something else and all that. Of course, you know, the desire for a Gibson Mastertone never left me. And uh, I'm not going to get into all the stories of all the other banjos that I've had. Other than to say, I've gone through a bunch of banjos over the years. None of them have stuck around. I had a Gibson Earl Scruggs model just recently that I had had for a long time and I, I sold it and I still keep that Stumac 3R. It's still the best sounding banjo that I personally have ever played. So anyway, 
sometimes economics can be a good reason to build an instrument. Okay. Now I mentioned that I built that from a kit. I could have built it from scratch. Uh, you know, just like go down to, a, there used to be a hardwood, uh, like a, a wood shop down near Georgia tech. I think it was called Atlanta hardwoods. And you could go in there and dig through the piles of mahogany and curly maple and stuff like this. And if the guy was there, sometimes it was hard to catch him. There it was a little triangular building near Georgia tech. If you caught him there, you might be able to buy some wood, but you could build completely from scratch, but you're going to need some plans or devise your own. So building totally from scratch is more difficult than building from a kit. And of course, if you consider a kit, consider how much work has already been done versus how much work are you going to have to do? You know, if the kit, let's say you're getting a banjo kit and the neck is just a block of wood. Well, that's different than if the neck is already roughed out and has the heel already machined, you know? So you got to consider what level of a kit a kit is. Sometimes a kit is just really a box of raw materials. So think about that. And then there's also building from parts. And that is you could go on all parts or something like that and buy you a Telecaster neck and a Telecaster body and a pre-wired pick guard and some pickups and, you know, get yourself a spray can of red lacquer and, you know, by evening, you know, be jamming on your homemade Telecaster. So, I mean, that's kind of at the, the other end of the spectrum from building totally from scratch, but it's interesting and it's fun to, you know, just see if you can do it. I will tell you that probably the most difficult aspect of building an instrument and when you're going to compare it to the commercial stuff that's out there is the finish work. Nearly anybody can hack out a neck or glue up the, uh, you know, bend the sides of a mandolin and glue in the linings and carve the top. But when you get down to binding and finish work, that kind of separates the men from the boys, you know, the inexperienced from the experienced. I don't think anybody is going to, I mean, I suppose there are rare exceptions of somebody who could, you know, put a, put a finish on a mandolin that looks like it came out of, you know, Weber's factory or whoever on their first attempt because it's a learning experience. So my suggestion is that if you want to get your feet wet in this, you start with something a little simpler, you know, maybe build a dulcimer. The, it wasn't long after I built the fiddle and the homemade banjo that I, you know, those Foxfire books were showing how to build a dulcimer and they're little sketches about how to do it. And I built one out of a door skin you used to be able to go to the lumber yard and buy door skins, which were Luan plywood, I think three sixteenths thick. They called them door skins and they were dirt cheap. And I built a dulcimer out of door skin plywood. And I built the entire thing. I didn't, I didn't, I was living in an apartment at that time. I did not have any real tools. 
all of the wood cutting that you would normally think, well, I need to go down to Lowe's and buy a bandsaw or something. I used an X-Acto knife. I drew out the lines on the wood and I cut with an X-Acto knife. And then I cut again and again. And each time the knife went deeper and, you know, 63 passes through the line and it it was free. You know, that's, I cut it. I cut the whole thing out with an X-Acto knife and clamps. People will go down to Highland Hardware in Atlanta and, you know, spend $400 on a bunch of Jorgensen clamps and, you know, all this stuff. When I put that dulcimer together, I glued it up and I had a set of Funk and Wagnalls encyclopedias that I got at Food Giant one week at a time. You buy $20 worth of groceries, and for $0.10, cents you get Volume 3. And next week, you can get Volume 4. I bought the whole set, 27 volumes of Funkin' Wagnalls. I actually bought two sets. I'm like, this is such a good deal, I'm going to buy two each week. And for 27 weeks, I bought two complete sets of Funkin' Wagnalls. And then I traded one set, because I had two complete sets to a guy at work for a muzzle loading flintlock rifle. And so I had 27 times 10 cents, whatever that is. That's how much I paid for that flintlock rifle. Anyway, Funk and Wagnall's encyclopedias make excellent clamps. I remember laying out that, that, uh, dulcimer Appalachian, you know, lap dulcimer on the kitchen table because it was kind of flat sort of, or I might've used a piano bench. Laying them out, gluing the parts together, and then stacking encyclopedias on top of it. So you don't have to have a ton of tools. Yeah, you might need some sandpaper. You might need a, you know, a knife, an X-Acto knife. You know, a little coping saw, you know. A little cheap stuff that you can, you can, less than $20. You could have all the tools you need to build some kind of an instrument. So I suggest that you try this. I don't think I would start with an F5 mandolin like my friend Danny and also my friend Ed Davis. Um, in 83, I built, you know, after I built that first dulcimer, then I was, I was becoming a mandolin player. So I thought, oh man, I want a real mandolin. And I had at the time I, I, some kind of no name a Japanese mandolin, and then I moved up to an Alvarez, which was a pretty nice mandolin. It was the first solid wood mandolin that I had. But I wanted a real one, you know. I wanted a real one, but there was no way. I couldn't afford a Gibson F5. No way. So I bought Roger Simonoff's book. When it first came out, it was in a ring binder and had all the fold-out plans and complete instructions to build your F5 mandolin. And it, I thought, well, this is my first F5. I'm not going to go out and buy the most expensive hunk of curly maple and stuff. I'm just going to make a mahogany neck, mahogany body. And I couldn't find any spruce around in Georgia. Lumberyards don't carry spruce, you know. I went out in a, I was out in Colorado one time, walked in a lumberyard and was just digging through the wood. Man, did they have the spruce. It was They were selling it for like one by sixes, you know, just just construction lumber. And it was spruce. And I, I remember buying a bunch of it and having the guy cutting cut it in half so I could fit it in my, or cutting it in thirds so I could fit it in my suitcase to fly back to Atlanta. 
So I had a suitcase full of all this, these spruce boards, which in Georgia, you know, would have just been pine and stuff, you know, and he didn't know why I was building it, but ended up making a mandolin, a couple of mandolins out of that spruce. Anyway, getting back to the, to the story, the Seminoff book, I, I kind of like, well, since my first one, I'll just make it out of lesser quality wood and, you know, learn how to do it. And then I'll, then I'll build the real one. And I, I finished that mantling up and I used Douglas fir for the top. Did the binding, just simple, just plain white binding. And I, I was just coming into Cedar Hill at the time that I had finished that mantling and I played it. I played that mandolin hard for two solid years. And it was, it's the mandolin that I used to play on the Mama Don't Allow record yeah, that we did in 84. And in fact, it's picture is on the album jacket. There was nothing wrong with that mandolin in terms of playability tone. You know, it could probably, it wasn't the loudest mandolin and, but I was playing it over a microphone all the time. It was a great mandolin over a microphone. But then eventually I got the flat iron and play them side by side. And I was like, put the, this thing I made, just put it in the closet. And it's still in there. It's still in the closet. I have occasionally pulled it out a few times and sent it home with a student. You know, a student would show up and he is just badly in need of a setup. And he don't want to take it on to do it himself. And I'm like, all right, just leave it with me this week. Take this one home. You, you keep practicing. You're not getting out of practicing this week. Take my mail on home. And I would send that my Seminoff mail on home with students. I even had a couple of them try to buy it off of me because it's so much better than their, whatever the Kentucky with the electric pickups in it and whatever. But I have never turned loose of it. I've built uh, other stuff too, just a whole slew of, of fretless claw hammer type banjos, you know, out of the Foxfire plans. I talked about that in that Billick interview. I've built, uh, God, I don't know, five or six of them. And I just keep experimenting. It's just more of a learning process. I've, I've stacked up poplar boards, sawed them out, put them on the lathe and turned rims and I've tacked, I've done tack heads. I've even done a wood top. It just all kind of crazy. I, I just like, I wonder if I could do this, you know, and I would just do it. And, um, the majority of those have been fretless. And so just another hint, if you're looking on the easy end of the scale of an instrument to try your hand at instrument building, think dulcimer because they're pretty simple to build. And think fretless banjo, because if your dimensions are a little wonky, it's not going to affect how it plays. You know, you can just put the, you can put the bridge anywhere on a fretless banjo. Just put it wherever it sounds pretty good with no frets. It doesn't matter where the bridge is. doesn't matter how, how long you made the neck or even where you put the fist string. I've made some, some fretless or one in particular fretless you know, like old time banjo. And I deliberately moved the fifth string towards the body of the instrument about an inch and a half. I made it even shorter than normal to get it out of the way because I noticed when I would slide my second finger up that fourth string going from a D up to a G, I would hit that little pip, that little nut 
the fifth string nut, my finger would bump into it. So I thought, well, you know what? On the next one I build, I'm going to, I'm going to move the fifth string up a little higher. Anyway, think in terms of build yourself a fretless banjo. I've been working for several years on a, on a PDF of a set of like pretty good measured plans. Um, I'll dig around, see if I have that. I may, I may put that PDF on the show notes page so that if you do get the urge, you know, it doesn't take a whole lot of wood, but you will be building experience. And if nothing else that you gather from this entire thing of trying to take some wood and turn it into something that makes some kind of sound, one thing you will get is an appreciation for the masters who build great instruments. And there is always the possibility that the bug will take over. Maybe you're at a point in your life and you've taken up an instrument and you're looking at reality and you're saying, all right, I'm 68 years old. What are the odds that I'm ever going to be really good on this thing that I'm playing? Well, that might be very, very low. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't do it and you won't enjoy it, you know, just going to jams. And I'm not saying this should replace that, but you might also be a guy that, and I've been, I've been building cabinets for the last 18 years. I've been working in a cabinet shop. Maybe I could build whatever you might, you might decide to build a pedal steel or a lap steel or a hammered dulcimer or 2,500, you know, dulcimers, or I don't know what you're going to do, but I want you just to think about it because every time you build an, an instrument, you're going to learn something and it could turn into a little, uh, you know, a little, a little backyard side hustle business type of thing. And it, you know, just consider it. And the only last advice I would give to you is do be careful. You don't want to slice up your fingers and, you know, run your hand through a bandsaw or something or, you know, table saws. I, I don't like table saws. I do use them from time to time, but they're just scary. They're so loud. And, you know, I'd like to keep my fingers, you know, so that I can play. I guess I put more priority on the playing than on the building aspect, but I'm just saying, do it, try it. Build something. If it's if it's just terrible, well, you learn something, build another one. One day you might build something that you take to a jam session. I remember taking that mandolin that I built. I finished it in 1983, and I was playing it in the band. I mean, that was my mandolin, you know. And people coming up to me going, what, what kind of mandolin is that? Where would you get that mandolin? Here, can I try it with your mandolin? And proudly saying, I built this. I built this. Back in those days, very few people were doing it. Today, every Tom, Dick, and Harry is building a mandolin, you know? So it's not as impressive as it once was. But, uh, you know, you can enjoy that feeling of accomplishment, too, if you do have something that you're kind of proud of, and especially if it sounds good. I'm, I'm more in interested in how does it sound versus, you know, how does it look? And, and another neat thing is that you can follow your own muse and your own idea. Just like if you were going to write a song, you can write a song about anything you want to. 
you can write a fiddle tune that's, you know, instead of eight bars and eight bars, you can make yours nine and a half bars if that's what you want to do. And you can do the same thing with instruments. I had a student of mine one time that I, I'm trying to remember the, the provenance of this mandolin. I can't remember the story behind the mandolin itself, but his wife was kind of a, an artist, you know, she, well, she was an artist and she painted the back of this mandolin. And I'm trying to remember it had like chameleons or lizards or something on it. And it was just about the coolest thing I've ever seen. And I, I don't remember if he built the mandolin or what, but anyway, just some encouragement, try building an instrument. Uh, th that same guy, um, well, I had a friend of mine, uh, Jimmy Atkins played banjo in Cedar Hill and he had bought a, an upright bass for his wife. You know, the old story of, you know, I'll get my wife to play bass. You know, he bought, and it was homemade. This guy had built his own, you know, just went out in a shop and, you know, <laughs> hacked out an upright bass. I don't know what it was made out of. I don't remember. It looked, looked pretty good. And he had put an aluminum bridge on it. I remember the bridge was made of aluminum. Well, I ended up with that base and then I ended up selling it to that guy, Roland, whose wife was the artist. And, uh, he, he took possession of that base. So, you know, when you're building an instrument, you're also providing instruments for other people. You know, you're, you're spreading the word, spreading the love, spreading the ability to make music. So get busy. No excuses. You know, I, I've seen these cardboard dulcimer kits. I, I, I don't know if I go with a cardboard, you know, if you're going to go to the trouble to make a dulcimer, you know, maybe at least spring for a little wood. But anyway, even a cardboard dulcimer is a start. And you will certainly learn an awful lot about, you know, appreciating the people who do build great instruments. And that'll give you a better knowledge base for judging instruments and you'll you'll certainly learn a lot about how to set up an instrument and how to try to tweak it to sound good anyway enough about all this i hope i have not bored you to tears talking about building in instruments but instruments are very tied to bluegrass and i encourage you to at least attempt it even if it's a kitchen table dulcimer type deal Y'all take care and I'll talk to you in the next episode. My daddy's crustier than Bill Monroe's butt. <laughs>